0: Nauticast? Podcast? The one true
1: chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better as better to be fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor
0: Quentin. And welcome to the 170th episode of the Nauticast titled, Shall We Dance? An analysis of a storm of swords, Jamie 3, in which Jamie and Brianne bang swords together and we meet the bravest sellsword company around. You could say that they become jamie and Brienne's companions for a time yeah you
1: could you could we just had the uh, the mummers parade here in philadelphia a particularly annoying annual tradition and as <laughs> soon as they woke me up all i could think it was the bloody mummers <laughs> marching through the streets of philadelphia if only then they'd be leaving jamie and Brienne alone sadly not the case i wonder if george ever like heard about the the, mum- the mummers like fine I, because you know, you,
0: you get the pr- impression that he has th- written a lot of people that wronged him in the past into the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> you it guys are awesome. going on the list. Yeah. You're all the, yeah, exactly, like the list from, like, The Jerk. But, so, of course. It's yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Into A Song of Ice and Fire you go, sir. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Master Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark M, Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes. Ragon Michael, War of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Rebelman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West. Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Jim that was promised. Lord Jacob too, the head of the King. Lady Zina of Leary. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rigger Terrier and Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorm. Kelly, Warden the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorsidelica, Sugar Tits Dent, The Delight Warrior, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer, Alex Beyonce's Favorite Sand, Herald of Cher and Bachelor of Chromatica, Exaltor of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the D's and General Lemps, and the Noncast, Non Binary, Not an Army, Hardler, the Wayfarer T. Well, a Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Veneris of House in the first her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Quoverworked, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Tevati, the Great Game of Thrones, pushes of the Realm, The Realist of Seven Kings, Blender Pates, Micker of Jarlings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kim, of the Wolverine, of House Corgo, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bunny Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the cadaver kicked, horror of Harrenhal. Hall. Hold up, the holder of cups. Sir Tim, the knight who's guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, lord of plagues. Sir Jack, lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Rick, Herculean, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Luke, lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, king of the Metro North, and protector of the Tri State. Squire Matt, as future Matt, as the one who brings balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrens of the South, and patron of freewheeling bisexuals, Lady Jabisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher of Harindale, official ice master deliverer, the valiant, punching reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to so his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the king's justice ward, the king's ward, and the sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Sec- Lord Anonymous II, Lord Anonymous Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter. Lord D.B., sister winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper. Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of Donatar Castle. James of House Keen, lord of the Forest City, admiral of the Cuyahoga, and the warden of the Western Reserve. And our newest member of the small council, everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Timothy Marshall, master of the roads and bridges. Thank you to all of our not-a-small counselors, and welcome to Lord Timothy. We've been talking with you for almost like two years at this point. I think we'll message back and forth on Patreon. But welcome to the not-a-small council, my friend.
1: We appreciate you and your support. Thank you to all our small counselors, as always, and special welcome to Lord Timothy. We look forward to all the many roads roads and bridges to be repaired in Westeros, because there are a lot over the course of the series. Need a lot, of, a lot of public works. Westeros is in need of. So happy to have you here.
0: Yeah, the bridge is evenly burned in this, this, this chapter itself. So yes, you can get that. So that'll be your first project here from *Storm of Swords* <laughs> Three: the bridge outside of Maidenpool. As always, our spoiler warning. As we, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducking novels, histories, interviews, the Windswept sample chapters, as well as *Game of Thrones* TV show, anything
1: and everything. We don't have a question this week. We're going to be putting out a call to patrons and others soon for, uh, for questions that they want to ask us here on the Not A Cast podcast. And another change up, I'm going to be jumping in and doing the synopsis this week because Jeff persists in his delusion that Jamie is the best POV character in A Storm of Swords. I thought it only fair to turn the meat of the Me episode only over to him while I do the synopsis and he did a, a bang up job talking through the, the depth portion of this chapter. So I can't wait to get to that. But first up, you will have to suffer through me doing the synopsis for *Storm of Swords* Jamie Three. I apologize in advance, hold on, to all hold you, on, you Jamie heads out there.
0: E- even if you are going to call me a Jamie head and say that it's unfortunate that I love Jamie, I'm
1: still going to give you an
0: Emmett, Emmett,
1: Emmett, Emmett. You got this, baby. Hit us with that synopsis. So kind, so kind. The the, the, the truest con head in all in all the fandom. <laughs> All right, the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 3. Jamie, Brienne, and Cleos Frey are riding through a burnt-out Mad Max wasteland with more wolves than people when they arrive at the town of Maidenpool, where things somehow get worse. The gates have been smashed open, and half the house is sacked or destroyed. No one's around to greet them except some feral dogs. Oh, but Lord Mooton still holds the castle. That's what's important. Look at his banner, b- flowing bravely in the wind. And then there's the titular Maiden Pool, where, according to the song, Florian the Fool first spied on Jonquil bathing with her sisters. These days it's full to the brim with rotting corpses. Jamie, being Jamie, loves the irony so much he starts singing the goddamn song at the top of his goddamn lungs. When Brienne, quite sensibly, asks him what he thinks he's doing, Jamie says he's singing about maids prettier than her, showing off his reddit honed flirting skills. Cleo's Frey begs Jamie to shut his full mouth because he's afraid of Lord Mooton. Yeah, he's a real threat, hiding in his castle up there. Jamie tells Cleos that hey, their enemies aren't the same as Brienne's enemies. We'll see about that. Brienne threatens to gag Jamie. He tells her to go ahead, if she'll unchain him. He also offers to scrub her he also offers to scrub her back in the pool, like he once did for Cersei. Oh, and he calls her Wench again. They're getting along great. Hope it works out for these crazy kids. Brienne leads them down the road toward Duskendale. Jamie's glad to see some green and growing things reappear. The burned wasteland reminds him of Eris. Nothing to unpack there, moving right along. (laughs) Unlike Cleos, Jaime is also glad that Brienne's taking them along the quickest road to the capital, even if it's more dangerous. You, uh, sure about that, buddy? Yes, he is, at least for now. He wants to get back to Cersei as quickly as possible. Jaime then tells us all about Twincest, the prequel years. He and Cersei used to sleep in each other's arms as children, even in the womb, according to Jaime. How the hell he would know that is unclear, stick it in his romantic projection file with the rest. Years before the Lannister twins hit puberty, they would imitate the dogs and horses they saw fucking in the fields. One day, a maid caught them playing and told their mother, Joanna, who, shockingly, didn't approve. She put the kids in separate bedrooms and told them, never do it again. But then she died, giving birth to Tyrion. Jamie doesn't even remember what she looked like. Sad. Hey, you think Jamie or Cersei ever told Tyrion that his birth allowed them to resume fucking? Probably not. Oh, too bad. Could have really helped him bond with them. Anywho... Jamie has had to keep the sister-screwing secret ever since, and he's tired of it. Maybe Stannis did him a favor by blabbing the truth to the world. Now he can marry Cersei openly. And then he'll marry Joffrey to Marcella. Westeros will accept the incest, just like they did with the Targaryens. Wow, what a sensible, realistic train of thought. (laughs) I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Jamie also thinks that he'll send back Sansa Stark after all. Really just to see the look on Catelyn's face. If only, if only. At this point, Jaime's musings are rudely interrupted by a flight of arrows. Jaime ducks in time, Brienne whips her sword out, but Cleos, naturally, twists his foot in the saddle and gets dragged off by his horse, his head bonking on the ground, making cartoon sound effects. Jaime realizes the arrows came from a low wall nearby and charges, hoping against hope that Brienne follows before the archers realize that he's A, unarmed, and B, in chains. Thankfully, she does, riding right past him and yelling her family name and home like this is Tolkien or some shit. The archers break and run, as Jamie knew they would. Like he says to Brienne, archers know that they're dead meat once they're within sword-swinging range. Jamie sees that Brienne has been shot by multiple arrows and offers to treat her wounds, given that Cleos was dragged off. Speaking of Cleos, they find the poor sucker dead, his skull broken to pieces by the ground. I guess I take back the cartoon sound effects? Nah, leave him in. <laughs> Brienne is sad. Jamie is not. He wants his cousin's clothes, his horse, and above all, his sword. Only to, only to watch for danger when Brienne sleeps, though, he pinky swears it. Brienne refuses to arm Jamie, even if he promises not to turn on her. He broke his oath to Eris, after all. Jamie says Brienne hasn't cooked anyone in their armor, fact check, true, and begins to unbuckle Cleos' sword belt. Brienne tells him, no, double no, no with whipped cream and a cherry on top, but Jamie has had enough. Jamie was tired. Tired of her suspicions Tired of her insults Tired of her crooked teeth And her broad, spotty face And that limp hair of hers He pulls out Cleos' sword And in one practiced motion Brings it around to cut Brienne down dead Wait a minute, checking my notes Nope, Brienne got her sword <laughs> out quick enough to stop him The duel begins And it feels like we need a sports announcer here In this corner, the Terror of Tarth The Maiden Cruel It's Brienne the Beauty In this corner, the Kingslayer The Lion of Night It's Jamie the Jackass <laughs> Jamie presses Brienne back, his pulse racing as the swords clang. This is what he was born for, he thinks, to fight. It's been too long. Which turns out to be more true than Jamie realizes. No matter where he attacks from, no matter how quickly he strikes, Brienne blocks every blow. Even when he drives her to her knees, she bounces back and starts forcing him to retreat. Jamie's in chains, and he's fighting with an unfamiliar weapon, but it's more than that. His sword skills all went to shit in his cell under river run. Ah, uh, but it's more than that, too. She is stronger than I am. That freaks Jamie right the fuck out. Don't get him wrong, he was never the strongest fighter around, he thinks. Robert in his prime, muscled like a maiden's fantasy. He was stronger. So were Gerald Hightower and Arthur Dane back in the glory days. Even in the present day, there are a handful of guys who bench more than Jamie Lannister. Great John Umber, Strongbore of Crakehall, and of course the Clegane brothers. Jamie always wins fights with his speed and finesse. But Brienne being stronger? That's different. She's a woman. That's breaking the rules. Where's the ref? Blow the whistle already. And Brienne knows she's winning, too. As she sends Jamie sprawling into the nearby brook, she calls for him to yield. He manages to wound her thigh, but only on the way to cracking his knee on the streambed. Brienne kicks away his sword, again telling him to yield. Jamie offers a counterargument in the form of wrestling her into the water. He tries to stab her with her own dagger, but she knocks it away and starts shoving him underwater like he's a gym teacher in a dunk tank. Brian tells Jamie one last time to yield or she'll drown him. Jamie says that, actually, that would make her an oathbreaker just like him. So much for the tolerant left, (laughs) unsubscribed. Suddenly, everyone bursts into laughter. Who's everyone, you ask? Why the pack of armed men who have been watching the fight like it's pay-per-view? Jamie tells them there's nothing to see here. He's just beating his wife, typical day. But one of the armed men points out that she was doing the beating. George writes that he has no nose. Hmm... Why does that seem so familiar? Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Jamie suddenly realizes that he knows these guys. They're not the outlaws who killed Cleos. They're the brave companions, a.k.a. the Bloody Mummers. Brienne offers them money. One skinny dude says they'll take that, with Rorge chiming in to say that they'll rape her next. Jamie doesn't like the sound of that and demands to speak to their commander. Turns out to be the skinny dude, Urswick the Faithful, who recognizes Jamie, even bald and bearded. Jamie tells them to hold Brienne captive for a ransom, and also to take his chains off before bringing him to see Vargo Hote. After all, these jabronis work for his dad. Right? Nope, not anymore. The mummers tell Jamie that they draw payroll from the Starks now. Jamie, being Jamie, once more can't resist pointing out the irony. Now they're the oathbreakers, just like him. <sighs> Slow learner. Urswick has both Jamie and Brienne pummeled and bound, despite Brienne's protests that she also works for the Starks. Funny how that works. Jamie feels bad for Brienne, knowing that she's likely to be brutally assaulted by these men. He warns her not to fight back when they do. He felt Brienne's back stiffen against his. Is that what you would do if you were a woman? If I were a woman, I'd be Circe. If I were a woman, I'd make them kill me. But I'm not. Jamie then demands to speak with Erswick, offering him gold to deliver them to Tywin and King's Landing instead. Urswick points out that Tywin would probably kill him as vengeance for the mummers selling him out, and Jaime admits in his thoughts that he was counting on exactly that. (laughs) Urswick then asks why he should betray Vargo Ho. Jaime insists proudly that Tywin will kick Vargo's ass, and then Urswick slaps him across the face and tells him to shove it up his oath-breaking ass. Only now does Jaime realize he's in serious trouble. Took him long enough. To be fair to him, he tries to get Brienne out of this as well, telling Urswick that Tarth is called the Sapphire Isle. Brienne overhears this and points out to Jamie that it's called that for the blue of its waters, but Jamie says that her only chance to avoid gang rape is to make them think she's worth a huge ransom. Otherwise, she could just let it happen and pretend they're all Renly. Jamie Lannister, everyone. Simultaneously the best and worst person he can be. They find Vargo Hote doing what he does best. Breaking shit. Pretty much all he does, really. His bloody mummers have sacked a sept and are using the septon as an archery target. Northmen, these are your tax dollars at work. Vargo is eating a half-cooked chicken because time is money and who's afraid of a little salmonella? Brienne again protests that she was sent lawfully by Catelyn, but Vargo Hote could not possibly give less of a shit about that and has her dragged away by Rorge. So much for the rules. Jaime decides to sway Vargo through an appeal to his greed. Tywin will pay a bunch of gold for me. That works about as well as it did with Urswick, which is to say it doesn't work at all. Vargo says he'll have Tywin's gold, but first he has to send a message. The Mummers knock Jamie down and yank his arms out in front of him. One of them, a Dothraki, pulls out his long curved Arak blade. They mean to scare me. The fool hopped on Jamie's back, giggling, as the Dothraki swaggered toward him. The goat wants me to piss my breeches and beg his mercy, but he'll never have that pleasure. He was a Lannister of Casterly Rock, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. No sellsword would make him scream. Sunlight ran silver along the edge of the iraq. As it came shivering down, almost too fast to see, and Jamie screamed. And that is the synopsis for a Storm of Swords, Jamie three. So, as the resident Jamie lover on the podcast, what did you think of it, sir?
0: Well, first of all, what I thought is bravo, oh, sir, on the synopsis. That was amazing and great that you were able to do that and do it so well too, and and embed so much empathy for for Jamie Lannister, which I believe you're starting to believe is the best point of view character in a song by i i citation I needed citation certainly needed and not provided so I, I i think it's amazing that we have only three chapters in a storm of swords before jamie loses his hand throughout the narrative so far jamie's felt like this kind of larger than life character torn from the pages of your typical fantasy novel He's Fabio, right? Kind of. He was the knight in shining armor, the best natural swordsman that Barristan Selmy had ever seen before he witnessed those boys on marine. But he was also the smiling knight, the villain who pushed Bran out of the story, yet whose easy smiles unnerved both readers and characters in the story. But it's only when Jamie loses that hand, the one that, of course, he'll say later, slew Ares, and the one that pushed Brand from the window, that he does not say, the one that he loses violently at chapter's end, that we see the character that many readers begin to love. Jamie will never be the same after this chapter. In many ways, that's for the betterment of his soul, I would argue. But that comes at dear cost to, of course, the titular best point of view character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. What? Davos?
1: We're talking about Davos now? <laughs> as well written as Jamie's first two chapters were, they do feel like setup for this one. We've gotten accustomed to Jamie's headspace, seen how he interacts with Brienne and the rest of the world... And we've seen how his thoughts just brush across the surface, hinting at something deeper and darker in his subconscious. Now all of that shifts into overdrive. Outlaws kill Cleos, then Jamie fights Brienne, then the mummers take them captive, then Jamie loses his hand. Everything moves so quickly that the first time you read it, all you can do is keep up, and George nails that breathless excitement. On reread, I can appreciate more how effectively the author establishes and then inverts the dynamics at play. Jamie is a prisoner then a swordsman fighting for his freedom, then a prisoner again, only much worse off. Everyone remembers this chapter for what happens at the end, the very end, the last couple words, and for good reason. But Jamie losing his hand wouldn't be as effective without the whole chapter making us uncertain about where we stand and what's going to happen next. It's definitely the best Jamie chapter so far, although to be fair, I will be saying that about the next few Jamie chapters as well. (laughs) Things keep getting more and more powerful as we go for a while here with Jamie.
0: And I do think it's interesting that George is like renowned for being this kind of slow burn type author where the plot just slowly develops. But for Jamie, it's like three chapters and bam, we're like right in the action scenes for, for Jamie Lannister's story. And it's something that I do love. The chapter two does start on kind of a slower, more moody, melancholic, brutal, violent note in that we open to Jamie 3 and in kind of anti-Tolkien landscape. The green of the woods and field turned black by fire. The fields have been burned, the trees have been burned, and the bridges are gone too. Everything is just burned out by fire. This is what war has done to the land. While Jamie, Brienne, and Cleo's attempt and eventually find a ford to cross with their horses, there's a kind of real feeling that the people in these lands have been trapped, herded in by killers, and killers that are fighting for either side. The company sees no one out there. They only hear the wolves. And where are the people, of course? Well, they're dead, as they're about to find out. Not all the people. Come on now. The first sight of Maidenpool finds Lord Mooton's Red Salmon, Red Salmon sigil still flying above the castle on the hill. He's doing fine, thanks. But underneath the castle is the scene of death and destruction. The pool where legends in the story say that Florian the Fool first saw Jonquil bathing with her sisters is filled with dead bodies. That story pool, which more than a little hinted at sex and lust in life, is now filled with death. Life vanquished the water poisoned by dead bodies.
1: I think that's, that's a great dynamic to tease out is that, that relationship between the promise of sex and the reality of death. I think this follows up on they lay with lions, right? The women hanged for pleasuring Lannister soldiers. Brienne said that no true knight would do such a thing. Jaime countered that knights see and do worse in every war. And I think both had half a point. Jaime is right that knights regularly betray their vows, not just him. Brienne is right that doing so makes them less than knights. So how do they balance the ideal with the reality? Maybe the two of them can try to live up to their ideals while recognizing that humans are flawed even at their best. So they'll never be the perfect knight. No one can be. The point, I think, is less that there's nothing to Brienne's chivalric values, and more that those values are often used as a smokescreen to cover up the truth. That collision and the disillusionment produced by it is what George is really interested in. And you can see that when Jamie bursts into song. He's making fun of the gap between how this pool is described in fiction and how it actually looks in a Westeros hit war. For Jaime, like Sandor, that song is propaganda, a ribbon wrapped around a bloody sword.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent dynamic. I think Jaime and and Sandor have a lot of similarities in their outlook, although Jaime is more fair to look upon. They still have that kind of same disillusioned idealist that's kind of coming to face to face with the reality of what's around them. And what's around these characters now is all of those dead bodies, but then the banners up flapping on the hill. The Lord and his chosen few who had taken refuge refuge from the slaughter. Lord William Mouton, who we're going to find his name is William later on, hold up and let his people die. He's kind of the anti edmir Tully figure here. Where Edmir brought all of his people into Riverrun because they were afraid, Mouton chose to embrace the fear and leave his own people to die. The small folk were afraid too. They heard the shouts and screams. They saw their friends and family die. But the gates to the castle up on the hill were shut to them. Lord Mootin failed at the most basic level, as I was talking a few episodes about, the most basic level of Maslow's hierarchy of political need, protecting his people. Of course, to add some complexity to this dynamic, we will find out in A Feast for Crows that Mooton sent most or some of his fighting men out to the riverlands forces fighting for robin Edmure. so there were probably only a few of his own soldiers left in the region to defend the smallville from the deprivations of war but there's no excuse not to sound the bells as, and not to sound the bells and save as many people as possible within the walls that's cowardice at the highest levels i think what's being demonstrated by lord Mooton here is that war is the disease exposing the rot of men and sometimes not the rot some do great deeds of valor and heroism, safeguarding the innocent and weak. is going to demonstrate that so strongly in A Feast for Crows. And others become evil monsters performing murder and brutality and rape across, this, across the Riverlands and across Westeros. And then some, like Lord William Mooton, expose their craven natures resulting in the deaths of their people. It's a hard dynamic to kind of look at, but that does, but war is kind of exposing the inward person among many of these people. With all of this walk in the ruins, with all of these walk in the ruins chapters in Clash Storm and Feast for Crows, I'm reminded that this destruction is partially the deliberate work of Tywin Lannister. Send Vargo Hot and his free riders out as well, and Sir Emery Lorch each is to have three hundred horse. Tell him I want to see the riverlands of fire from the gods eye to the red fork. As Brianna's going to find out in the Feast for Crows when she revisits Maidenpool, the town was sacked by the Lannister army. But it wasn't just Lannisters who sacked the town, as one of the small folks says in A Feast for Crows to her. Lions sacked this town, then wolves, then sellswords. Lions did the first sack, then wolves, or northmen, and then sellswords. Everyone is preying on the defenseless. Again, much like the last chapter, we're getting a picture of a Westeros that's much more complicated than the north equals just the good
1: guys, Right. And when Brienne returns to Maidenpool in A Feast for Crows, like you were saying, we'll see Lord Mooton in the flush. He's knuckled under to the Lannisters and is playing sidekick to Randall Tarly. Even in relative peace restored to his position, he's still not doing shit. As you were saying, he's not a brute like Randall. He's just a coward. Maidenpool is located very near the border between the Riverlands and the Crownlands. If you look at House Mooton's history, you see a pattern of split loyalties and shifting sides. It's not easy to pick sides in the Civil War. I'm sympathetic to the situation faced by families like the Swans, who send sons to multiple sides. But the flip side of that is every faction taking out their frustration on civilians. And Mooton abandoning his people is unforgivable. We're seeing more and more why the Brotherhood without banners is so popular. That Mooton banner still flying in the wind is a symbol of irresponsible authority.
0: Yeah, and I do think in the next Arya chapter, we're going to see a symbol mm-hmm. of good authority in the form of Lady Smallwood, who's one of my favorite one-chapter one, note char- one chapter characters in, in the full series, because she is taking in the outlaws and refusing to allow the deprivations of her land by those who are, who are out to despoil it. And I think, like, so far, we've been talking about Maidenpool, we've been talking about Lord Booten, but what's missing is Jamie Lannister. And what is his first response to witnessing the bodies of the pool? As you were saying, He's singing! He brings up the song of six maids in a pool, a song that evokes, again, both innocence and sex. For Jamie, this gruesome scene of death and destruction invokes his bitter cynicism about the world of song and story. Again, as that disappointed idealist, Jamie is pointing to the absurdity of song and story when compared to the reality on the ground. We don't know what the actual truth of Florian Chanka really was. We don't know if these characters actually existed for that matter. But Jamie thinks the story is ludicrous and silly. The story and song is Junko in the pool. The reality is the bloating is the bloated bodies fouling the water. Brienne tells Jamie to shut up. There might be someone listening. And Cleo says uh, they want one of rouse brave or Mutant, right? And there could be other enemies around which I guess you can have to stamp that one as Cleo's the omniscient. Jamie though, is still caught up in reveling in that cynicism, making jokes about seeing if Brienne can use the sword and engaging in that classic Jamie nagging thing of calling Brienne a wench. This really drives Brienne up a wall. And she is angry enough that she lashes out yelling that her name is Brienne. It's Brienne. goddammit. it. At this point, Jamie's constant use of mockery about Brienne has gotten under her skin. It's no longer a fresh insult. It's not funny. It's just retreading the same old joke over and over again. I identify as an attack helicopter, so to speak, of the Song of Ice and Fire. Jamie realizes this and is using it to get an edge, though, on Brienne. It is intentional on his part. And he's trying to spring himself free of her. It's always struck me that Jaime wants to get down to King's Landing too, but he doesn't want to get there in the chain, in chains, and especially as a prisoner of a woman. Now, though, the world starts to turn green again, and we see that Jaime's cynicism is rooted in something else altogether. All of this burned-out land and dead bodies—it reminds him of Eris the Second Targaryen. As Jaime will say later in the chapter, it all goes back to Eris. He's referring to the bloody mumber as disbelieving him there, but it's also an internal reference point that he always returns to. The other internal reference point is Cersei. Jamie is tired of Brienne and Cleos' company, thinking of his cousin as a much less Lannister and Brienne as an ugly woman. With Cersei though in mind, the beautiful woman that he always thinks is the ideal woman, we get earl- Jamie's earliest memories of his love for his sister. As children, Joanna Lannister caught them doing something that he didn't remember, but mom thought it was so wrong that she put her children on opposite sides of the castle. Interestingly, Joanna's threat to her children was that she would tell Tywin what they did if they were caught doing it again. In a normal family context, the don't tell dad on me thing has some sort of resonance, right? But man, it becomes all the more darker when it's done in the context of Tywin Lannister. Even Joanna knew that the threat of Tywin Lannister was enough to scare her own children. Their own children. But Joanna died, and Jamie can barely remember her face. I, I sympathize with Jamie. I find that a very sympathetic moment for him. Without pictures, I probably couldn't remember my own father's face, too, as he died when I was very young, the same way that, that Jamie's mother died
1: when he was very young. And probably my favorite Jamie scene in the story is his dream of his mother in a feast for crows, which I think is the closest thing the Lannister family ever gets to a reckoning. On a reread, it's clear that a lot of Jamie's callousness comes from the emotional unavailability of literally everyone other than Cersei in his life. The only person who ever showed him any other way to live was Joanna, and not only did she die, but Tywin only only got colder in the aftermath. We're going to see when Jaime gets back to King's Landing that both Cersei and Tywin just don't believe him capable of independent thought, basically, and treat his assertion of individuality as an outright attack against them and the family. Joanna also enforced the rules on Jamie, but I think it's clear she had his best interests in mind. And I love the detail about sending them to the opposite sides of the rock. Like, that genuinely is a huge distance away from each other, given how big Castle Rock is. Like, they probably just never see each other. Jamie feels a magnetic pull to Cersei. As she said in Book 1, we're two halves of a whole. His comment about them being close even in the womb frames their connection as cosmic for him, sacred, his spiritual core. It was destiny. We didn't even choose it. This is just how it is. It's the source of meaning by which he judges everything else, and nothing else in life has ever measured up to it.
0: And I think that's why he's going to be so disappointed at the end of A Storm of Swords when he reunites with Cersei and sees uh-huh. that his own idealization of Cersei is not the reality on the ground. In many ways, Jamie's story... In the song about in, in a storm of swords is almost like the reverse, where he has this ideal of Cersei that becomes grounded in reality. Whereas he also has this kind of cynicism about knights and knighthood that he becomes that he's he's had tempered by the reality of his of his service and experience as a knight, and starts to embrace some of those tenets of of knighthood as we're going to find out, especially in the bear pit scene at Harrenhal. Still, all these thoughts about Cersei lead Jamie back to this whole incest business. Stannis and the Starks reveal the truth. Fuck it. Let's just be Targaryens. Let's get sibling married like the Targs used to do. Now, I think it's clear to me as a slight meta moment that George had invented the doctrine of exceptionalism when he wrote A Storm of Swords. That obviously came when he was writing Fire and Blood Volume 1, and especially in the aftermath of writing The World of Ice and Fire, where he's writing about Jaehaerys, the first Targaryen and Alysanne's relationship, and uses that as, a, as an interesting spot to kind of distinguish the Targaryens from the rest of the, the rest of the people in Westeros and why they were able to get married to their to their near relatives so here it's it's simply that the realm accepted Targaryen incest implied but not stated is that the reason this was accepted is that of course the Targaryens had fucking dragons Jaime isn't thinking rationally here though he thinks that a marriage to Cersei would undercut Joffrey's claim to that throne which is a rational thought but it would just take steel to hold the throne that's how Robert won at Robert's rebellion anyhow which yeah in a way but Robb's rebellion was fought with the ostensible principle of holding justice and removing a tyrant from power. You remember all those things. It's not built on a lie. Potentially, yeah, whatever. We're not going to relitigate that from 2019. Can't imagine the realm rallying to the cause of sibling marriage, Jamie. And remember those dragons I mentioned? The Lannisters don't have any dragons, so you can't really compel the small folk and the population to just be okay with the Lannisters getting married to each other. Jamie then also then starts to bizarrely compound his own thinking, talking about how he should wed Joffrey to Marcella just to normalize the practice. Now, I think all of this is not exactly rational, to put it mildly, but it makes some story sense because these are the thoughts of someone who has spent a year alone in the dungeons, just thinking things to himself, having no one to talk to but himself for the most part. More than that though, I think this shows Jamie living in a juvenile fantasy. He thinks his mere presence can bring swords to his side. This is somewhat true, but what he's not reckoning with, at least not yet, is that the swords at his side are there because of his father. A father who, if you remember from Tyrion's third chapter, just angrily dismissed accusations that Jaime and Cersei are fucking. Timon has deniability with Jaime and Cersei here, not especially plausible deniability in my opinion, but deniability all the same. Jamie's idea is to remove that plausibility altogether and then multiply his sins in the eyes of the population. I think beyond all of these specific character moments, I think this speaks to something we examined at length with Robert Baratheon. These Robert's Rebellion-era veterans are still acting like they're 18 years old. That rebellion arrested their development. Despite being men in their mid-30s, they still think and act like teenagers. But then before readers can abandon Jamie, we get a hard pivot from Jamie to one of my favorite Jamie lines in the series— Jamie had decided he would return Sansa and the younger girl as well, if she could be found. It was not like him to win back his lost honor, but the notion of keeping faith with all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say. Back when we did a Clash of Kings Catelyn seven, this was the pivotal line for my defense of Catelyn releasing Jamie. He was going to follow through on what Catelyn wanted him to do. Of course, Jamie can't help but couch the entire idea as irony. Freeing Sansa and Arya would be hilarious. Just think about the irony in the Reddit comments. This is another meta moment in Jamie's story. It's not funny within the story itself, but it's funny to us because it challenges our perception of Jamie. The reader thought that Jamie would absolutely betray Catelyn, that he would break his oath to her. Instead, he plans to keep it. It's hilarious. Are you not entertained? Jamie wants us. Jamie's asking. But perhaps somewhere deep in Jamie's mind, buried beneath layers of cynicism and irony, lies perhaps, perhaps a shred of goodness.
1: And just as Tyrion is starting to realize that he has no permanent place within the Lannister Coalition, Jaime is getting sick of keeping quiet for the family's sake. I think this goes hand in hand with his secrets about the Mad King. You can see that in how Jaime's thoughts keep shifting from one to the other. As you say, Robert's rebellion never really ended for those that fought in it. Jaime keeps reliving those days. What he went through in the Kingsguard destroyed his ability to believe in the world around him, as did his reputation afterward as Kingslayer. He wants to rebel against the hypocritical pieties of Westeros by openly marrying Cersei and fighting a war to keep Joffrey on the throne anyway. It's politically disastrous to say the least. Like Tyrion's plan to attack the Vale, this is less about sound military logistics than personal needs. Jaime wants to create a closed loop within his immediate family because no one else seems worthy to him. He wants to create a situation in which he never has to deal with anyone else ever again. What makes him such a complex character is that his alienation is both sympathetic and unsympathetic. On one hand, he refuses to regard anyone else's fears and desires as important. On the other, he's not actually interested in the politics of Lannister dominance like Tywin is. He doesn't really care about leaving the glorious legacy of the thousand-year Golden Reich that Tywin wants. (laughs) So he gets to the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. He's like, why not send the Stark sisters back? You know, as a joke. And it's, it like, it's, it's a moment that changes Jamie's character, but in a way that deflates the seriousness of what's going on. So it gets you kind of interested in his psychological state and how, not just what he's thinking, but how he's thinking. Jamie's flip-flopping reveals he is slipping headfirst into nihilism. He needs more of a push to decide what's really important to him, to give a purpose, an earnest purpose to his actions in what seems like a purposeless world. And as we know on reread, he is certainly gonna get that push.
0: Yeah, the push is going to come hard and heavy for Jamie. And I think, you know, when we talk about like Jamie, we we talked about this in the mini episode, but like he's been like surrounded by the high walls of Castley Rock and the high walls of the Bread Keep. So he hasn't had a lot of interaction outside of the world of the highest levels of privilege and power. And that has caused him to have a very almost limited, narrow viewpoint. and All that privilege and power has isolated him. And that isolation has made him very interesting when it comes to these these discussions that he has with other people and you know we talk so much about like jamie lannister as a as a singular character interacting with the world but so far a lot of his interactions have been so limited and that does create a very interesting character but one who has a very flawed way of looking at the world so now that we've examined jamie's weird-ass thoughts his meta winks to readers and his cynicism it's battle time baby well not quite a battle sadly. It's an ambush by outlaws. No, not the Bloody Mummers. They do show up in just a few minutes. These are your kind of nameless outlaws. The normal outlaws harass travelers and plague the lands in times of peace. Even in the midst of carnage and war on the riverlands, the normal criminals remain. In fact, I'd argue that the criminal class is uniquely suited to survive and thrive in war. They were predators before the war started, or more charitably, they're survivors in an already corrupt system. The thrum of arrows announces the ambush, and Jamie, as a hashtag veteran, reacts instinctively by shouting at everyone to get down. In the army, or in the gym, where of course I work out, we call that reaction muscle memory. You train on reacting to indirect or direct fire over and over and over again until it's a reaction that doesn't take conscious thought. Jamie was trained, but he also had experience with this type of ambush, this type of ranged weapon, the bow. The Kingswood Brotherhood that Jamie fought against had characters like former outlaw and current Knight's Watchman Almer the Archer, in their midst. But once the location of the enemy and ambush are discovered, Jamie charges at them. Is this the action of a rash bold fool? Eh, mayhaps. But it's textbook battle drill number four, which of course everyone knows is react to an ambush. Specifically, Brienne, Cleos, and Jamie are in a near ambush situation, and the Ranger's handbook is very clear on what to do when faced with a near ambush. And I know that you all know this, but I'll quote it for you all the same. Soldiers in the kill zone immediately return fire, take up cover positions, and throw fragmentation grenades or concussion and smoke grenades. Immediately after the, amb- after the grenades detonate, soldiers in the kill zone assault through the ambush using fire and maneuver. Sadly, so sadly, holy hand grenades don't exist in Westeros, but Jamie correctly gets his body into a low silhouette. And then after finding the location of his attackers behind a low wall, speeds his horse towards the archers and yells at Brienne to do the same. Brienne follows, and the archers get one more volley off at Jamie and Brienne, but it does no good. They run away before Jamie and Brienne can fully close the distance, and that's smart on their part. The advantage of ranged weapons is to is distance to target. When the target closes the distance, it's time to get the fuck out. As the archers run away, Jamie asks why Brienne didn't pursue them into the woods. Be, because they're retreating, Jamie? Isn't that just the normal practice of war? No. Jamie says that's the best time to kill archers when they're running away. Brienne here is representing the songs and stories of chivalry you don't kill fleeing enemies you fight them face to face mano mano jamie though represents the reality of war you have to kill more of the enemy than yourself to win the war for those interested in who would be right in a modern wartime context the Geneva convention would actually have jamie i know it's crazy but have jamie be in the right killing retreating enemies is not a war crime Killing killing, surrendering enemies, though, certainly is.
1: I like Jamie's perspective here because it reminds us that for all his arrogance and cynicism, Jamie isn't a lead from behind kind of guy like his dad. He knows the battlefield. His instincts are sharply honed. In a chaotic situation, his POV becomes our refuge because he knows what's up. And this is how he's always navigated the world. No matter what happens, he can fight his way out of any situation. Until he can't. His bravado about the archers is well-founded, but on reread, we know that it's about to be stripped away from him. Oh, yeah. And speaking
0: of killing these archers, or potentially killing these archers, poor Sir Cleos Frey did not survive the battle, having been dragged to death by his horse. Cleos is an easy character to dismiss. He comes across as cowardly, but but was he really? What's the objective reality about Cleos Frey? The reality is that this was Cleos Frey's third time traveling through the war-torn riverlands. He survived the first two times, but third time's a charm. Or a curse. I think the man deserved better. We talked about this in The Clash Kings 2 and 6, but he's definitely deserved better. He had been a pawn of the Lannisters and the Starks. And now he's just another casualty of this war. Another pawn knocked off the board off his horse. Jamie though, just misses Clears' death. He has plenty of other cousins. He just wants his stuff now that he's dead. There's a Callousness to Jamie here that makes readers not identify with anymore. The man just died, dude, and Jamie wants his stuff? How fucking rude can he be? But Jamie's position is slightly defensible in that this whole thing is about survival. He wants cleaner clothes that don't have fleas in it and doesn't want to wear his rags anymore. He also wants Cleo's sword to, as you were saying, help Rianne with the watches? Yeah, for the watches. Brienne says that she won't allow Jamie to be armed, but Jamie is sick of being told what to do, and he's sick of Brienne's company. So he reaches
1: for his dick, I mean his sword, all the same. Cleos has basically been comic relief in these Jamie chapters, in a way that reminds me of Edmure around his family. Cleos is always bumbling or babbling, never cool or witty or badass, he's easy to make fun of. Even his death is goofy. While Jaime thinks quickly and Brienne charges in like the badass she is, Cleos falls off his horse and is dragged to death. But like his cousin Lancel, he's also used ruthlessly as a patsy by his more powerful relatives. He's ultimately a pawn in the Game of Thrones, with no place in either one of his families on either side of the war. The detail about his skull in pieces under Jaime's fingers makes me flinch. No wonder he lies to Cleos' parents about how he died. For all that Jamie makes fun of the songs, he doesn't always face the hard truths. In plot terms, Cleos is here to die, so that Jamie can take his sword. He's not only a messenger bird, he's a delivery vehicle. In character terms, this gives George a chance to show off Jamie and Brienne's different reactions. She says he's still warm. A connection to life, recognizing humanity even as it fades. She might be thinking of Renly. Brienne is still an open wound, emotionally. Jamie is like a wound that's been scabbed over. He refuses to mourn for his cousin for the same reason he refuses to name his horses, and makes it hurt when they die. This is the full extension of Tyrion's wear-it-like-armor logic. Jamie's walls are so high, he can't feel for anyone outside his siblings. All that matters, he says, is that Cleos will be cold soon, and he doesn't need his things anymore. Jamie does. As you said, there's a clear practicality to this, especially with outlaws all around them. But Jamie's detached, sardonic attitude doesn't ultimately work for him, in that it doesn't save him from remembering the past. All of Brienne's insults get to him. He mocks her looks and his words and his thoughts to make her seem ridiculous, so then he can dismiss her hatred of him. He still feels it, though, and he draws his cousin's sword against her for that, as much as to win his freedom from his chains.
0: Yeah, and I love how George introduces us to Jamie and Brienne's epic duel. As the blade slid from the scabbard, he was already pivoting, already pivoting, bringing the sword around and up in a swift, deadly arc. It's poetry and violence in one sentence. The beauty of the whirl of steel arcing up, the horror of the violence that Jamie intends with the sword. Something in our lizard brain, something in our lizard brains, clicks at smooth angles of swordplay. It's not scientific, but is it the same reaction to our that our brains have to dance as well, to sex even? We'll talk more about that last question at the end of the episode, but Brienne is just as quick as Jamie, surprisingly, bringing her own steel to parry his. But Jamie quickly drives Brienne back with a flurry of sword cuts, thinking how his chains will make this fight a good sport. And all the while, Jamie's blood sings. Singing blood is such good writing. This is what combat feels like. The adrenaline coursing through your limbs, the blood rushing up in your eardrums. It's exciting. It makes you feel alive to stay alive to attempt to deal death. I know that is a contradiction, but that's what it feels like. Beyond that emotional reaction by Jamie, we're getting an almost swashbuckling Errol Flynn from the Adventures of Robin Hood feel to this duel. Jamie's just here having a good time, smiling and joking around as he attempts to, of course, kill Brienne. That's Jamie's mood anyhow. Brienne, though, is focused on her duty, on keeping her vows, and she's fighting for her own life. The absurdity of all this is that in order to keep her vows to Catelyn, Brienne can't really fight back. She can't really kill Jamie, yet she has to defend herself with deadly force, while avoiding killing the man trying very hard to kill her. Now, you may have heard about this, but there is this fucking dumbass debate over who is the better swordsman, Jamie or Brienne, with either side taking this singular sword fight, has all of the evidence they need to support their perspective. I think this debate is silly, and dumb, and bad, and immoral because both Jamie and Brienne are limited. Brienne isn't trying to kill Jamie here; she can't. And Jamie is fighting with his wrists chained together after having not touched a sword for nearly a year. Still, to stay in the Swashbuckling movie territory for a bit, the fucking uh, the swordplay <coughs> starts with Jamie on top, similar to a Nico Montoya from the Princess, Bl- from Princess Bride versus Wesley. Jamie thinks through his motions. Left, right, backslash, swinging so hard that sparks flew when the swords came together. Upswing, side slash, overhand, always attacking, moving into her step, moving into her step and slide, strike and step, step and strike, hacking, slashing, faster, faster, faster. Obviously, this is just a reference to sword play. <clears throat> but it gets to what you were saying about this, about Jamie's sharply honed instincts about warfare. This is all deliberate as a memorized dance for Jamie. His entire life was spent training, on, training in the sword. He's had the best training that money can buy. And even though he's been rotting in the Riverrun dungeons for a year, wielding a sword is muscle memory for Jamie. One of my favorite non-book scenes from Game of Thrones is the war story scene from season one, where Robert, Baratheon, Barrison Selmy, and Jamie Lannister talk about their first kills. Robert's first was a Tarly Highborn lad whose chest he caved in with his famous warhammer. Stupid boy, Robert says. Untrained or undertrained, and he died for it. I would imagine that was many of the people that Jamie fought with the sword prior to this moment, untrained or undertrained boys. It's kind of reminds me of like this professional athlete trained with every fiber of their mind and body to master a skill playing their own game against JV athletes. But Brienne ain't JV, Jamie. The problem for Jamie is that Brienne had similar training under the even star master of arms, Sir Goodwin. Given that Brienne came to believe that she couldn't aspire to traditional fem- femininity, she took up the sword and mastered it in much the same way
1: that Jamie did. Jaime is just so glad to be doing what he knows and loves best again. For once, he's not dwelling on the past. He's alive in the present moment, which stretches on and on, as he thinks time slept when swords woke. It brings him back to himself. It feels so good that he ignores all the signs that this fight isn't going well so what if his hands are chained together? So what if he's fighting with another man's sword? He's the best. It'll be enough to defeat Brienne. But Brienne is fast enough to get her sword out to block Jamie's initial attack and calm enough to match wits with him throughout. Jaime is just, uh, he's just covering up the signs that this is, like, as you say, it's not a, not a JV opponent. This is someone more experienced he's dealing with.
0: Yeah, and Brienne is able to really defend herself against Jamie, And the first leg of the dance ends in a draw of sorts with Jamie out of breath. But Brienne's not out of breath. This is the first of three movements in the dance between Jamie and Brienne. And it struck me that this scene, as you were saying, goes on and on and on. But unlike, you remember like Arya 3, where we were both kind of a little bit like, kind of get on with it, George, on the whole horse chase scene between Arya and the Brother Without Banners? There wasn't a moment where I wanted George to just wrap it up here. I think that's actually because there's real stakes in this, this battle. We knew Arya was going to be recaptured. We don't know the outcome of this duel between Jamie and Brienne, especially as first-time readers, and there are real stakes and limitations at work. The second bout reiterates that stake. The second bout reiterates those stakes. Brienne will not harm Jamie, and Jamie dismisses Brienne as a wench before he tries to kill her again. They dance through the forest away from the body of poor dead Cleos and on into the woods. Jamie still has the seeming advantage here, but Brienne doesn't make mistakes and avoids getting killed by Jamie repeatedly. Jamie describes Brienne as having an iron cage around her which does a fantastic job of showing not telling how Brienne is able to deflect every one of Jamie's attacks from every single angle. All those angles that Jamie was referencing before, Brienne can counter every single one. The second round closes with an exhausted Jamie gasping fair before promoting Jamie before promoting Brienne from wench to <sighs> not bad for a green squire. Jamie's still like adapting the swashbuckling mentality, but there's a growing respect that Jamie has for Brienne, even if he's in denial that Brienne is way,
1: way better than a Green Squire. And I and I love how everything Jamie ignored as the fight began, all her advantages, all his disadvantages, grow in prominence in his PUV as the fight goes on. As you say, that, that he's promoting her from wench to green, uh, green squire, but not quite tonight, not quite his eagle, equal, even as that's what's happening. It's a perfect way of capturing his dawning awareness, the realization that for once, things aren't going his way.
0: Right, and the third and final round has Brienne taking advantage over Jamie, becoming the Wesley to Jamie's Inigo, and gaining the clear advantage over, Bri- over Jamie, driving him back. Hilariously, Jamie tries to rationalize how he could possibly lose to Brienne, this woman. His skills went to rot in the dungeons, it was the damn Starks and the Tullys who were to blame. He has chains around his wrist, but wait, Jimbo, didn't you start the round thinking that having chains around your wrist would make it a contest? you did. But finally Jamie starts to realize the truth. Brienne is stronger than him. Now, I think Jamie is right here that Brienne is stronger than him, especially in the state that he's in. But what Brienne demonstrates here more than strength is stamina. She's not just stronger than Jamie, she's able to withstand his attacks and then become the attacker without running out of breath the same way that Jamie has. Shock starts to shock starts to set in over Jamie. Oh sure, there were a few men who were stronger than him, but 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 this is a woman. Jamie's misogyny is offended by this realization
1: wounded even and yeah this moment shatters Jamie despite all the evidence he's already seen of Brienne's strength remember when she like pushed that boulder onto the boat to save him from the pursuing Tully man that already demonstrated that she was a badass it's one thing for her to be a badass in isolation though more of a badass than Jamie that's unacceptable he was able to deal with other men being stronger as he thinks but misogyny adds a little sting to this for him. It suggests that all the categories he uses to keep himself afloat might be bullshit. Moreover, he was able to beat those other stronger men with speed and skill. And even that is not availing him now. Without that certainty in himself, without that gender identity that makes him the male Cersei, who is he really?
0: And That's the question that we're going to unpack in the rest of *A Storm of Swords. Who is Jamie Lannister now? The battle then proceeds on to a stream and Jamie gets a cut at... Brienne's thigh but then he slips on the rock and banks his knee something fierce they tumble to the stream with Brienne in the um this is a real position in mixed martial arts so you'll forgive me if I say it It is called the mount position Jamie is clearly beaten here as Brienne yells at him to yield but Jamie refuses lunging for a dagger before Brienne nearly tears Jamie's arm off Brienne then southern baptizes Jamie in the river in the rivers in the river demanding that he yield and Jamie Spits water in her face. It's still a game for this dude, even as he's clearly lost the match. Brienne forces his head back underwater. First baptism clearly did not lead to the remission of Jamie's sins. Time to rebaptize again, Seventh Day Adventist style. Little Christian humor there for you. Brienne threatens to drown Jamie, and Jamie decides to turn the moral tables on Brienne. You'd break your oath? Like me? Throughout the first two and now the third chapter of A Storm of Swords, Brienne and Jamie have parried back and forth over vows and oaths. Brienne's perspective, as outlined in Storm Swords Jamie 2, is that Ares was mad and cruel, but Jamie broke a sacred oath to protect that mad, cruel king. In Jamie 2, though, in response, Jaime says that Brienne couldn't possibly understand why he broke his oaths. What reason could he give that she would understand? But here in Jamie's third chapter, Jaime challenges Brienne about her own oath to Catelyn Stark is it really worth keeping? Maybe you should break your oath just like I did.
1: And I love that in urging Brienne to break her oath, he's Jamie's egging Brienne on to kill him. Like it's, I think that's his self-loathing reaching the surface only in death. Can I be redeemed and made my better self? And because in death I would be right. You would become just like me and prove my point And then I could die. And that's, that's that really, I think locks you into Jamie's kind, very kind of tortured, twisted understanding of himself.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like Jamie kind of has a death wish, but he only wants to be mm-hmm. proved right, and then he can he can be allowed exactly. to die. He just look. I just want to be proved right. I understand it's a very sympathetic motivation on Jamie's part. I understand that one, and I think like too, like subconsciously, Jamie is talking about himself again when he's challenging Brienne on her oath to Catelyn. When faced with him and hundreds of thousands of others dying by Eris's order to wildfire King's Landing, Jamie broke his oath. Will Brienne do the same when Jamie threatens her life? when Jamie would rather kill her rather than be brought to King's Landing in chains. Before Brienne can truly wrestle with this morally impossible situation, though, she's rescued from making that choice. Rescued is not the right word. She is interrupted by the worst possible people. And it's the bloody bummers, these assholes. It's hard not to think of a worse group of people that Jaime Brienne could run into besides them. There's an interesting question embedded into the presence of the Bloody Mummers here. Why are they here? Maidenpool is kind of a long way from Harrenhal if you look at a map. What I think is that the Bloody Mummers were here to sack Maidenpool. Remember the town was sacked once by Lannisters, once by Northmen, and once by swords. The swords the in this case would likely be the Bloody Mummers who picked the remnants of Maidenpool clean and were probably the ones who threw the bodies into the pool. It seems like a very Bloody Mummer tactic. Jamie correctly calls them the scum of the earth, in his mind, the worst of the worst, and he's not wrong. This is not a good sign for Jamie and Brienne that they ran into these people, but I do like what George does here narratively. Jamie has been more than a little, shall we say, unsympathetic to readers so far. Sure, it's fascinating to be inside of his head and get his point of view, but his constant misogyny, his near nihilism, his cynicism, they really start to grate on Brienne's nerves, and they really start to grate on readers' nerves. So what to do from a narrative perspective? What does George do? Introduce a much, much worse group. You want to make the pivot for readers about a character, so you bring in worse characters to highlight the contrast. In other words, it's all in where you're standing.
1: Agreed. I I love the pacing and the framing of this. The Bloody Mummers are just suddenly there, all along the banks of the river. They're an audience. They're like us, the reader, chuckling at Jamie and Brienne. The duel is so intimate, and then the camera just zooms out to take in the rest of the world again. And like Jamie, first time through the book, you assume these are the outlaws who killed Cleos. And then you get that skin-crawling reveal of Rorge among them. George plays the audience like a fiddle here. We left the Mummers behind when Arya fled Harrenhal, and suddenly, here they are, with no warning. Remember
0: Rorge and Biter from The Clash of Kings, the worst possible people that Arya encountered? Roarge is here with his fellow Bloody Mummers, and he is the first one to speak. Again, a terrible, terrible precedent. Jamie attempts to play it off as him chastising his wife, which um, the, Bramie hands, the Bramie fans, I think, might like that line, that Jamie identifies Brianna as his wife first, but maybe they don't like that line, and we shouldn't like that line because there remains the misogyny inherent in Jamie's attitude. Physically assaulting your wife in Westeros is normal practice. He was just chastising his wife. Brienne attempts to bribe the Bloody Bumbers then to let them go peacefully, but they have no interest in this. They'll take their money, of course, but Bororich gets right to his real interest. He wants to rape Brienne. This is a very bad and increasing number of very bad signs for Jamie and Brienne. Sell swords who sell their swords to the highest bidder are more interested in rape and violence than money. What I think this also demonstrates is that the desire for violence is stronger than the desire to get paid, especially amongst the Bloody Bumbers. In a Sympathetic moment, a rare one for the start of Storm of Swords for Jamie. He doesn't think Brienne deserves to be raped, so he asks who's in command. In steps Erswick the Faithful, who immediately identifies Jamie as Sir Jamie. Villains might be evil. But that doesn't mean they're stupid. Cunning villains are far more scary. Jamie says that the Bloody Members will be rewarded for returning Jamie and Brienne to Father Tywin, and it's clear that Jamie didn't get the brief up of events in the Riverlands before leaving River Run. He still thinks that the Bloody bumbers work for his dad. They're mere employees, and they'll get their their yearly bonus if they get him over to Tywin. This is hilarious to the bumbers They switch sides, you see. They serve Bruce Bolden. You see, Tywin lost too many battles. Jamie muses a lot that people say he has shit for honor, and that's a good line. There's always someone worse. But the reality is that it only results in Jamie getting punched in the stomach and Brienne getting beaten by four men. Brienne and Jaime get dragged back to the body of Cleos Frey, and Jaime notes that the surcoat of Cleos has arrows in both parts of his quartered sigil, Frey and Lannister. These proud sigils didn't save Sir Cleos Frey, he died just like any other man. But you do feel that the Bloody Mummers don't even deserve to wear the sigil of the two of the worst houses of Westeros, and yet they're stripping his body clean of that sigil and that surcoat. Of course, Jaime was talking about stripping Cleos of his clothes and sort when this all began. But his reasons for dishonoring the dead were to have better clothes than flea-bitten rags and to grab for that sword. This is just loot
1: for the Brave Companions, another
0: body to pick clean before moving on to the next
1: victim. And as soon as Brienne realizes that's what they're dealing with, very dangerous people, she offers up her money as this kind of golden shield to give them something to avoid the worst. But, like the clansmen who approached Tyrion and Braun in the Vale, the mumbers consider her money to be already hers. That's what the clansmen told Tyrion and Braun, right? Like, your horses are already ours. We've already taken them in your mind. We're moving on to the next thing. And it's the same here with Brienne's body. Rorge immediately threatens rape, and the rest join in. The reader already knows what they're capable of. Nightmarish is kind of an overused word, I think, when when talking about horrifying scenes in fiction. But the structure of this one really does feel like a nightmare. Just this descent into the most terrible vibes imaginable. It's the speed with which all this happens that makes it work so well. Every reversal brings more dread as things get worse and worse. The emotional dynamics of this chapter have shifted completely. The tension between Jamie and Brienne that we were so focused on suddenly seems moot. Jamie seized the feeling of control, along with his cousin's sword, but that fulfillment faded as Brienne proved herself stronger than him, and now he loses the ability to win with words and his name, along with his blade. And this is a challenge for his cynical detachment. He is being pulled across a moral line he never intended to cross. Sure, he wanted to kill Brienne, but now he's being faced with a level of violence that is shocking even for him, and he can't talk his way out of it. The Mummers have switched sides, they say, to the Starks. And one more time, Jamie can't resist the joke. After taking so much shit from Brienne and Catalan and everyone else about his honor, now they're being confronted with a far worse kind of oathbreaker. Jamie told Cleos earlier in the chapter that Brienne's enemies weren't the same as theirs. But now it really doesn't matter that Brienne is also working for the Starks as she keeps protesting. The sides are blurring together, both corrupted by the war, and that's represented by the Mummers working for both families.
0: And I think you make a really excellent point about how Jimmy can't rely on his name anymore. It is the very much a parallel facet, which is occurring with Tyrion in A mm-hmm. Storm of Swords, where he was ultimately in A Clash of Kings, always saying he always had the backing of his dad there, which allowed him to get away with all the stuff that he was able to get away with. But now that Tywin is back in town and is in power Tyrion does not have that same sort of level of responsibility, not responsibility, but the same sort of level of power that he has had it back in A Clash of Kings. For Jaime, it's kind of a similar parallel track for him that he can't rely on his father's name and his, his house name in order to keep himself alive because he's on his way to Vargo Hote and Jaime warns Brienne that she's going to be raped and to not resist that rape. That's not what Jaime would do if he were a woman. He'd make them kill him or her before he he or she was raped. Jamie's trying to like, you almost get the sense that Jamie's like trying to project what a normie would think here. What's the best normie tactic to stay alive in the situation? Well, just accept that rape will happen. A little, more than a little callous on Jamie's part. And it's callous, but it's also what he
1: later tells Tom in A Feast for Crows. Just
0: go away inside.
1: <coughs> It's another one of those complex contradictory moments for Jamie because he's stepping outside his armor only to reaffirm Brienne's armor, thinking to himself he would not take her courage because he knows that's all you have left in a situation like this. It's detachment as a form of survival. It's what he learned from serving the mad king. And I think that's that's perfectly true to his character that he would his moment of connection with Brienne would be telling her to shut down, to to <laughs> avoid all connections. For Jamie, that's the only way to avoid pain.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, Jamie had to go away inside when he witnessed all the terror and atrocity that Ares was committing. When Brandon and Rickard were, were Brandon was, where Rickard was burned in his armor, and Brandon was was strangled to death. That's what he kind of tells Catelyn there. And Jamie though has to realize the that Brienne is also not a normie either. So he calls over to Urswick and asks him, "Hey, do you like money? People like money. Do you? Not." just the gold of Castle Rock, but did you know that Tarth is known as the Sapphire Island? You get gold and gems both. Do you like money? I know you do. It's kind of an unsophisticated attempt by Jamie to win over this sellsword to his side. But Erswick, because Erswick isn't buying what Jamie is selling. He knows that Tywin Lannister is unforgiving when it comes to betrayal. He knows he's about to get his ass hanged if he shows up with Jamie to King's Landing. Tywin's reputation precedes him, and Jamie can't negotiate that way. So he changes tactics. Oh, you get money and gemstones and gold, and you also get a pardon and look under your seats. It's a knighthood. And come on, you can't possibly believe that Vargo can stand before the power of Castle Rock and House Lannister, right? You'd be a fool to think that. Erswick. In response, slaps Jamie lazily across the face. Tywin lost too many battles, bro. He ain't, invisible. He ain't invincible. He's been beaten over and over again. And, and by a 16-year-old kid, get lost. This kind of makes me think that maybe the news of the Blackwater has not quite reached these bloody mummers yet. They've been too far away from the flagpole, so to speak, sacking Maidenpool. And without modern telecommunications, urswick doesn't know that Tywin now has an army of Westermen and Breachmen at his back now. Just supposition there. Kind of makes me wonder what Erswick's response would have been had he known the outcome of the Battle of the Blackwater. Regardless, Erswick won't believe the words of an Oathbreaker. Jaime killing Eris is the moment that Westeros remembers. Eris' cruelty is a memory 16 years in the past, but Jamie the person lived on. It always goes back to Eris because Jaime survived and serves as a living reminder of his misdeed. Jamie fantasizes about a heroic death for him and Brienne there, again, highlighting Jamie's juvenile mindset while also showing us that Jamie was infused with the songs and stories of his youth. Jamie may not believe in that chivalric nonsense anymore, technically, but the songs and stories stay with you long after you stop believing them. It's the same way that George's Catholicism has stayed with him long after he stopped believing it as well. When Erswick leaves, Brienne asks Jamie, why, 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 would, you, why would you tell this would be night that Tarth has sapphires. Is called that because of the blue of its waters. Don't you know that, you idiot? Yeah, Jamie knows that he's lying, and he was doing that to delay the rapes that Brienne would event would absolutely experience. But since Brienne won't accept Jamie's sincere attempts to prevent her rape, she could just get raped and think of think, think of Renly again. Jamie returns to being really unsympathetic in this moment. He's angry, of course. Erzwick refused his offer because of Jamie's reputation, and Brienne mistrusts him because of his reputation. There's this kind of Tyrion-esque trait in Jamie where you get the sense that the guy just wants to be told, thanks, dude, rather just one time rather than just be mistrusted over and over again. So now that all of the mistrust and all of the dynamics are laid before Jamie and Brienne, they arrive at Vargo Hoat's forward operating base, or rather a sept that the brave companions are sacking and find a scene of sacrilege and desolation. The gods of the Faith of the Seven have all been dragged from the sept, and a Dothraki, a foreigner tries to take out the ruby eyes of the mother meanwhile a dead septon hangs upside down as being used as target practice by the mummers this is a sickening scene that reminds me of the village that Arya, gendry hot pie lami and weasel found back in clash where gregor Kilgain and the mountainsmen were at and like that scene where the smell of dead men mingles with cooking meat we find vargo Hode eating a chicken amidst all of the slaughter Vargo lists that Jamie is the captive and dismisses Brienne's statement that she serves Lady Catelyn by ordering her beaten again, but not to break her bones. She's worth a ransom. Just lovely stuff by the bloody mummers all around. The rot in their ranks is all encompassing, and you kind of get the sense why all of Westeros just fucking despises them. Shoved down at the campfire, Jamie notices all the coins around Vargo's neck. Every campaign he's ever been on, every slaughter he's ever participated in. This scene at the Sept is not the first time, the first people, the first place the Bloody mummers despoiled. He's taken coin from all over Essos and Westeros. Jamie thinks this is an opportunity again and tries the tactic he used with Urswick: Just take me to my dad and you'll get a ransom. And Varga immediately agrees. Uh, hooray? Question mark? He's getting all the golden cast rock, but not before he sends Tywin a message. Well, not Tywin directly. The message is intended for Roose Bolton, but we'll get to all that good political maneuvering. Come, Jamie Five from *A Storm of Swords*. As Jamie is being held down by the mummers, he thinks the message is "be scared." No, that ain't the message, bro. The message is the arak that Zolo has and what it's meant to do. George showed us the beauty and violence of the sword with Brienne and Jamie in the woods, and at chapter's end, he returns to that motif with sunlight running silver off the edge of the arak as it shivers down. It's gorgeously written poetry, and you can almost feel it moving in a Zack Snyder-style slow-mo coming down from the sky. But the end of the chapter is not awesome. The end of the chapter is is Jamie screaming. This is his, oh, moment. The moment when Jamie knows he's not bound for heroic death, at least not here. And... You gotta hand it to Jamie. Sorry, I just used just one time in this entire chapter, but you gotta hand it to Jamie. It's the moment in A Song of Ice and Fire that will change this character, this point of view, this Jamie Lannister forever.
1: Oh, that's so well said. And yeah, this ending it just it just compresses it all. Everything Jamie brings to the table and all the pushback he faces from the world around him. Like the chapter as a whole, this scene is so brutally fast. Not only to grip the audience's attention in a vice but also to express how Jamie feels. He's facing down powerlessness, more than he's ever had to in his entire life. He's always set the pace of things, dancing with swords where time stops. Now time is moving faster than ever, out of his control. Jamie thinks up until the last second that what's happening can't possibly be actually happening. It's all for show, just to break him. And he won't break He's Jamie of House Lannister. He's the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. All these capital letters. He's the greatest swordsman <laughs> in Westeros. So by definition, he will never scream. This, in spite of losing the battle at the Whispering Wood. In spite of losing his duel to Brienne. In spite of Cleos's random death proving that he is not safe. That no one is safe. This is the moment in which that, that level of irritation you were talking about. That, that infuriating reality-proof bubble that has defined Jamie so far as a character finally pops. The maiming itself, I feel like it's almost analysis proof in that it represents the end of rational thought for Jamie, the breakdown of his POV itself. It's like an exclamation point or the sound of a car backfiring. It's the feeling of all the oxygen rushing out. And that detail you you, you picked on is is so good. The detail, that sunlight running along the silver of the Iraq, it it just plunges you into this moment. Like there's a razor blade coming out of the book at your throat. It's It really is a, a before and after moment, a line you can point to in terms of Jamie's story. And the chapters that follow for him are a gauntlet for the reader, as much as him. This is a sign that we have to start reading it differently. And I think the fact that Jamie is such a popular character suggests that George really pulled that off.
0: He absolutely pulled it off. And again, like Jamie is being my favorite point of view character in absolutely. A Song of Ice and Fire. That really starts here at the end of Jamie's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. Jamie's fourth chapter is just this death march of brutality mm-hmm. on the way to harren hall jamie five is the famous bath the bathtub scene jamie six is the rescue at the up Re-Am. it really just starts to like move in a, in a in a quick motion of kind of elevating jamie as one of the best point of view characters because you you both see the complexity there but you also realize too that he is an action type figure an action hero in this story and I love action heroes, man. I just do. And and I think like your point about it being almost analysis proof. I, I I think that's that's accurate. I mean, I could look at an explosion all the day long, and I could talk about what it does to my brain. But ultimately, sometimes I just want to watch an action figure or an explosion coming up on screen.
1: And so that uh, is going to take us into a foreshadowing and groundwork. The, uh, the little gambit that Jamie pulls here with the supposed Sapphires of Tarth, that's going to come up again in his next chapter, when he uses that fool's gold to save Brienne from gang rape. It's a very intense moment when Rorge and a couple others are approaching Brienne, and Jamie just yells Sapphires to get Vargo Hote's attention to ensure that they'll be kept safe, and that's, that's really an important moment for Jamie and Brienne's relationship. No, I love that. I love how
0: Jamie sees them try to like sneak her off, and then he's like, "Oh, that's right, sapphires!" And he like yells it really loudly in the, in the chapter. It's 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 really really good. I, I think it's uh again like Jamie's best sides come out in his interactions with Brienne, mm-hmm. and I do think that is is a dynamic that I think is underexplored. Like people look at Jamie and see only the guy who saved hundreds of thousands of lives from the from the Mad Kings. Um, from the Mad King's psychosis, but I think what we actually see from Jamie's goodness in the present day
1: is found most in Brienne. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's that's when you start getting the, the reader's inkling about a uh, changing perspective on Jaime. Uh, like we were saying about uh, Jaime's uh, promise to send Sansa home to her mother. And he does, we're gonna see, try to make good on that towards the end of the book by sending Brienne to find her, which I think is, is a very kind of interesting like act of displacement where he's kind of felt like he's he can't do it or or doesn't feel up to it given his family so he wants her to be his best self and and go send Sansa back and by that point it's taken on more of an emotional charge but you see that that nugget buried in this chapter. I think it's good
0: that we have that whole idea that that Jamie's actually going to follow through and try to save Sansa Stark. And I, and I and I love what you're saying about how it's like his best version of himself mm-hmm. is Brienne. And Brienne is going out to save Sansa Stark to actually be the knight in shining armor and to to rescue the fair maiden in distress. I think it's, that's beautifully written by, by by George. But it all finds its basis back here when Jamie says, "Yep, I'm just going to save Sansa
1: Stark anyways because everyone thinks I'm going to betray them, but I'm not." Ha-ha. Ha-ha. <laughs> 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 Isn't it a funny joke? Yeah, that's why having Shagwell there is good because he like he's there to undercut any joke you could possibly tell as this, as this monstrous fool, and that's the situation Jamie's in. One more bit of foreshadowing that I didn't pick up until this reread was Jamie sarcastically offering to wash Brienne's back in the pool at Maiden Pool. And then you get to Harrenhal Hall and they share a bath after all. And that's it's uh, it's where Jamie fully fully unburdens himself. So that's a nice bit of, uh, a nice twist where Jamie acting all aloof and cynical about uh, a pool in this chapter pays off when he the, all those walls break down when he finally steps into the pool with Brienne, so to speak. Do
0: you think when George was writing this, this pure supposition, you know, there's nothing sure. in the So speak Martin Archive, but do you think like that George went back and added that line in to this chapter after he wrote Jamie's fifth chapter, or did he put this line in here before he wrote the fifth chapter? I mean, I, it's, it's kind of like a it's, – it's not a very meaningful question, but it's one of the ways I think about like how you do foreshadowing when you write uh-huh. a book. Do you, do you do it after the fact? Because, I mean, I, I think like there's some clear lines uh, that George was like um, – when when Sanders talking about the red wedding and he says, "Oh, I'll get you to your dear bloody your, your uncle's bloody wedding soon enough." Sort of. Thing. Yeah, right. It seems clear to me that he went back and rewrote that wrote that line into that
1: chapter after he wrote the red wedding. I don't, I don't know. It's what the question I have about like little scenes like this. I, I agree. I think you can tell those lines if they if they are if they seem extraneous to anything that's happening in mm-hmm. the scene because yeah, Jamie doesn't. You know, the point is made when Jamie starts singing the song. Him offering to wash Brienne's back in the pool. I feel like that could be reinserted by George there's foreshadowing that's, that's interesting for sure so moving us into our uh, theory and discussion portion of the episode one uh, thing I definitely want to talk about with this chapter is coming back to this Jamie Brienne dual scene and talking about it as a sex scene that really this actually might be George's best sex scene and I think this is something that people who are ship Jamie and Brienne have talked about at length but I think it's, it's an interesting part of their dynamic the way George writes this scene and I wanted to, to talk about it a little bit here Jamie has definitely has a subconscious attraction to Brienne that gets more and more conscious as we go through a Storm of Swords and I think this this chapter is the crossover point where it starts poking into his conscious brain but isn't fully there yet that, and that's isn't fully there yet and that's really how George writes it. Jamie starts this chapter off by calling Brienne a fair maiden and offering to wash her back. He's being sarcastic of course, but you know as we've been comparing him to Sandor, this is like Sandor with Sansa, I think in that Jaime is also trying to cover for a connection that is more earnest and hopeful than he's used to, so he has to be sarcastic about it. And then the swords come out. Cersei tells us later that Jaime said he only felt alive while in battle and in bed, linking the two together, as George often does. Jaime's blood is singing, the swords are described as kissing, they move faster and faster until Jaime stops breathless and his sword is drooping. Yeah, they're basically fucking, as close (laughs) as the two of them can get, displacing their feelings onto combat, which is an arena they're both kind of more comfortable in. At least Brienne certainly is. The subtext gets uh, less subtle as we go. During one break in the fighting, Jamie calls Brienne my lady and asks her for a dance. When the mummers reveal themselves, George gives away the game completely, as Jamie thinks that Brienne is blushing, like they caught them fucking instead of fighting. It's an extremely Freudian move, right? It's a case study in sublimation. Jamie has never had a romantic or sexual connection outside his family, and Brienne has only had ne- negative experiences in this realm, like I said, save her unconsummated crush on Renly. Violence brought these two together, and violence is what keeps them together. Captive of the mummers, their connection is all they have. George builds on this scene, I think, when Jamie gets an erection in the bathtub at Heron Hall, and then rescues Brienne from the bear pit. George is, you know, inconsistent with his actual sex scenes, some of them are well written. You know, you got the tender Ned Cadlin scene, the interesting Asha Carl scene where they're doing some role play. <laughs> um, and then you get scenes like the, the, the Ariane Eris Hokard sex scene, which, which feels, I think, very forced and kind of cringy. This scene is, I think, genuinely erotic because it's all in the subtext, because of how hard both the author and the characters are working just to keep it at bay. It's existential as well as erotic. Jamie and Bryn are like versions of each other, as we were saying a little bit ago. Jamie says at one point in the chapter that if he was a woman, he'd be Cersei. And I wanted to get your read on this. I think part of what's going on here in in their relationship and in the duel scene especially is him reckoning with the possibility that if he was a woman, he'd be Brienne, or maybe that that's that's who he would want to be as a woman, and maybe he wouldn't want to be Cersei. Do you think that's a fair read?
0: I think it's an extraordinarily fair read. I think more than just being a fair read, I think it's it's implied in the text. I think throughout the duel scene, we have Jamie and Brienne fighting, and Jamie is you know. Giving it is, is all his best, at least what, what he's able to at that point. And Brienne is able to block and defend herself, and then she eventually presses, presses the attack and basically beats him. And what Jamie is witnessing here is someone who has the same skill set that 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 he has, <coughs> and even is, is even better at it right now. Whether he's actually or she's actually better than him is is hard to say. Whether Jamie had his prime versus Brienne her prime, who would actually win there? I hate those fucking debates so fucking much. But regardless, I, I think. One of the things I think about a lot is, you know, Jamie does talk about this. Like, if he was a woman, he would be Cersei, and he was. If he was a woman now, maybe he would be Brienne. There's this this idea that's, that we see in, in in the Bible where you talk about the man and the woman becoming one flesh, right? There's that idea that you have the unit, the union of a, of a man and a woman that become one flesh in this kind of marriage uh, routine and, and and in sexuality. I think there is something inherent in the text here which speaks to the possibility that there is a union between the two at least temporarily um in, in this sword swordplay which again is a very clear metaphor for for sex and i do think it is interesting that so much of of this 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 battle is not like super like it, it is thrilling like in terms of like the heroics in terms of like the fighting that's going on but it's clear that george's george's inspiration to write this was not a not not necessarily the swashbuckling stuff like that was that that was there but the clear inspiration is obviously sexuality and 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 you know having sex with someone. And so Jamie and Jamie and and, and Brienne here are, are are clearly their sword fight is clearly a metaphor for sex. I am curious how this is going to happen in *The Winds of Winter* or *A Dream of Spring*, because I, I think we have the scene here in *A Storm of Swords*, which very clearly indicates that the two are having sex with swords. There is there going to be some sort of interesting, similar, paralleling dynamic where it's it's it, like they bring swords back into the mixture when the scene comes back in in back up in the winter and 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 or a dream of spring i i think the show gave us a version of that from season eight which a lot of fans didn't like a whole lot but i think it's also but i think is really really good and It was a very good scene from season eight um but i do think that there will be some deliberate literary paralleling that george will will do for the scene from a storm of swords when we get that scene in in the winter or or dreams. Is that something that you think is is possible on George's part?
1: I think that's a, that's a great possibility that they would be mirrored like that. And I, you know, I wonder if Jamie's so eager in this scene, maybe he'll be more hesitant maybe be be more uncertain. I mean, Brienne hasn't had sexual experiences before, but the fact that Jamie hasn't had one outside Cersei outside of this really intense uh, kind of soul draining relationship, he might feel shy too. He might have his own kind of virginal feelings, even though he isn't one. And I think that would make that kind of potential fumblings and tenderness can make a great contrast to the the swiftness and brutality of this scene. Um, And yeah, I think, you know, uh, much as swordplay can be like sex, sex can be like swordplay and that they'll be fighting their own internal demons and and moving through their own resistance and uncertainty to get to each other. And I think they're, yeah, Jamie and Brienne, I think George is, is playing with all the ways he can show human beings connecting. And sex is one of those ways, and I think he builds up to that really effectively here.
0: I agree. It could be like almost like the the effect might be like two virgins having sex for the first time because Jamie uh-huh. as he tells Catelyn as he was only faithful to Cersei, she was the only woman that that she ever knew, and to have that experience with with Brienne come come the winter or or Dream Spring would be different, would be very new, very new, very unique. And I can see an awkward Jamie, which I think would be a very uh, interesting dynamic to have. This character who seems very confident in himself. Suddenly kind of being laid bare bare and vulnerable in in his sexuality, as we're going to see in later Jamie, especially Jamie 4 and 5, where his vulnerability physically is something we're going to see on display. I would love to see that dynamic come into the the sexual relationship that he and Brienne will have in The Winds of Winter and or A Dream of Spring. But I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 3. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. And if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts.
1: You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIaf or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam K, Wisdom Benja, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of bull and De Morgan, Tid the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties and the Summer Isles, Random, First Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, Not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine, and Lord Commander of the Flat Planet Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, and Archmaester Hugh of the Tower, whose rod and ring are of tinfoil. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies
0: folks so much your support means the world to us so join us next week for a storm of swords aria 4 in which Arya and the brother without banners tour the riverlands in search of Barristan Darien, but somehow end up in Kashik from star wars before heading over to acorn hall to meet one of the best one chapter characters
1: in a song of ice and fire lady smallwood Earlier Arya chapters in this book didn't have too much going on, so we combine them into one. But Arya four just there a cup overfloweth in terms of stuff going on. We get so, such a strong sense of the Brotherhood without Banners and all the characters they made along the way. So a highlight for sure in terms of Arya chapter is going to be good.
0: So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords Arya four.